It's time for Money for Lunch, where we feed your brain and your business with supersized portions of business and financial news. Now your host, Bert Martinez. All right, welcome back. I know that you're going to love today's show. Today's show, we're going to be talking about branding. Uh, we're going to look at some real life examples, how some major brands are making, possibly making some major mistakes, for lack of better terms, uh, maybe changing things up. In the house today, I have leading expert. Um, actually, leading expert doesn't even come close to describing my next guest, Deb Gabor. Uh, Deb Gabor is passionate for brands. More accurately, she's a brand guru, if you will, a brand impressor, uh, brand evangelist. She's written the book on branding not once, but twice. Um, best-selling uh, books are Branding is Sex and Irrational Loyalty. She's the founder and CEO of Soul Marketing, a strategy-led marketing firm obsessed with solving major business and marketing problems. Uh, Deb is the go-to person when I want to talk about branding and marketing issues. Deb um, Gabor, welcome back. Well, thanks. I'm so glad to be here. You bet. You bet. So off the bat, we're going to be talking about one of the greatest taglines, slogans in the world, and that is finger-licking good uh, <laughs> from KFC and you told me, and this blew me away, you said that they're getting rid of this slogan. I thought, like, what? This is like the world's greatest, one of those top slogans that everybody knows who it belongs to. So yeah, absolutely. I, and, yeah, and I, I, I don't think it's gone forever. I think that KFC pressed pause on this. It is true that Finger Licking Good is a brand slogan that's been around for so long. It's kind of part of the conscious unconscious of society at this point. And it has such a strong association with this brand, which has gone through some ups and downs over the past couple of years. So um, I wasn't surprised that they put it on pause. Um, I just was surprised that we are so stupid, a society of people that we need to be told by our our fried chicken brands to not lick our fingers in the age of the pandemic. Um, so it, it, I don't know. It's an, it's an interesting story for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is like, when is the last time Bert that you actually talked about Kentucky fried chicken or KFC? Can you remember? I, I cannot remember. No, not at all. Okay. So I'm curious if the big news, which like came across my newsfeed yesterday, multiple times, I'm curious if that hasn't like, thrust KFC back into top of mind awareness for everybody. And look, here you and I are talking about KFC over lunch. I'm a little bit hungry. How about you? <laughs> you know, and what's interesting, I tell you when I do think about KFC is every now and then I still see a Popeye's fried chicken commercial. Fried chicken, I automatically think about KFC. It's still in my, in my psyche, in my mind, when I think of fried chicken, I think of KFC. They, they won that space in my head. And it's interesting that you said that maybe they put this on pause because I remember, you know, Coca-Cola for years had it's the real thing. And I always thought they were going to bring that back. They haven't brought it back yet. But, you know, why do you think they paused or why do you think they're going to bring back finger licking good? Why do you think it's not gone forever? 
I, I think because of exactly what you said about brand association. So when you think about the category of fried chicken, you said you think about Popeye's, but the brand that comes top of mind is Kentucky Fried Chicken or KFC. And as you know, like FC stands for fried chicken. So like truly the brand is synonymous with the category and finger looking good is probably one of the most recognizable marketing taglines in, in the known universe. And so, um, I think that the folks at KFC's ad agency and KFC, the the organization itself, probably has told the world we're just putting it on pause because they hope that we return to a better day when it's safe to lick our fingers again. Um, who knows if it's going to come back or not? But you mentioned Coke. Yeah. It's the real thing. So one of the reasons why Coke hasn't returned to that symbol is one of the things that makes Coke and Coca-Cola one of the greatest brands in the world. So if you look at the list of the most valuable global brands in the world, based on what is the contribution of brand to the overall valuation of those organizations, Coca-Cola is perennially on the list of the top, probably the top 25 most valuable global brands. The reason why Coke hasn't returned to like, it's the real thing as a slogan is because for all intents and purposes, Coca-Cola is a water company now, right? Oh, yeah. And so when, when you have a, when you have a tagline or you have a marketing slogan or you have a brand that's based deeply in the functional benefits of a product or in a product itself, it's not highly extensible, right? But Coca-Cola's brand, their brand promise is to inspire moments of connection and happiness, right? Have a Coke and a smile. Uh, You know, I'd like to teach the world to sing, right? It was all about inspiring moments of happiness. And the brand is still about inspiring moments of happiness. But when the brand transcends the product that they sell, So if it transcends cola, it gives you permission to become a water company. It gives you permission to be in the food business. It gives you permission to be a lifestyle brand. And so that's probably, I mean, I don't work for Coke's agency and I I definitely don't work at Coke, but being a brand expert, um, that's my, that, that's my theory on, on why uh, maybe they, they've created a, a different brand promise brand image that still connects to the old brand strategy of inspiring moments of connection and happiness, but is, is something that hovers above the product itself and really speaks more to the deep emotional connections that the brand makes with people. All right. So, so you bring up something that's, uh, that I want to talk about. So let's say I am a mom and mom and pop shop, whatever, you know, I'm a dentist, a lawyer, a, 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 what do you call it? A, a landscaper, a plumber, whatever. You know, should I be thinking about a slogan? I mean, what makes a brand? Is it a slogan? Is it a logo? Talk about what really makes a brand and what should I think of when I'm trying to create my brand? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. Um, And I think that small businesses, especially those categories that you just listed off, like doctor, lawyer, dentist, landscaper, electrician, marketing company, whatever you, you happen to be, I think it's really, really important to think about a brand. Your brand is way more than a slogan. Your brand is the sum total of all of the emotional connections that people have with your organization and the people and the values and beliefs behind the brand. And so um, I, the reason why brand is really important, I probably can illustrate that through a real short story for you. So um, I'm at my office in Austin, Texas, and I work uh, on a busy road and I look out my window across the busy road and directly across the street from me is my top competitor. 
How do I know that she's my top competitor in the Austin Business Journal? Like, you know, largest woman owned businesses and, um, you know, uh, largest advertising and marketing agency. She and I are always neck and neck, like every year we're neck and neck. And I'm like, oh, you know, the years that she beats me. And so um, I literally sit at my desk every single day looking at her sign. However, People who hire her firm are not the same people who hire our firm. We never compete for clients directly. We offer almost exactly the same services. However, the type of clients that work with us are organizations that are in a grow or die mindset, have a lot at stake to get it right, and they need a kick in the ass to get there, right? People who hire her firm have a challenger brand that's trying to grow incrementally or protect share. They are looking for someone to run their marketing long term, not completely transform their business. So we wouldn't work with the same people. And so the best brands in the world are the ones that are unique they're singular. They're not just different. So if you're a landscaper or you're a dentist, you're you're probably in a situation like I am. I can't swing a cat over my head in Austin, Texas and not hit 150 other people who do exactly what I do. But the best organizations in the world, no matter how small they are, whether you're a solopreneur or you're a professional or you're the local landscaping company, the best brands are the ones that really identify who is that one ideal person that we're for aim the brand directly at that person's values and beliefs, take a walk a mile in their shoes, understand what it is that you provide to them that they can't get from anyone else. So people don't hire us for marketing. People hire us for the kick in the ass, right? People hire her, you're a challenger brand and you want to go up incrementally maybe, or you want to protect share. It's a completely different relationship. It's a different essence. And it's something that makes us singular unto ourselves. And so that's the essence of branding. And no matter how small the business is, no matter how new the business is, you should think about creating those deep emotional connections that create that condition of irrational loyalty, which irrational loyalty is that feeling that you'd be cheating on someone if you were to choose a competitor. So you can develop that for the dentist. Like, I've felt that before. I remember, you know, I remember like shopping around for a new dentist. I remember going to a new hairstylist and feeling like I was cheating on my hairstylist. That is irrational loyalty. And that condition is available to every business, whether you serve consumers, whether you serve other businesses, no matter what the size you are, you know, no matter whether you're selling products or you're selling services, you can create that condition of irrational loyalty. And I want to hit on a couple of points. First of all, I like the fact that you said focus on the one. And mm-hmm. I think where most people mess up is they think, okay, you know, they're, they're thinking of a huge crowd of people that are going to come do business with them, which is what we all hope. We want thousands and millions of people, but you have to develop that one avatar, if you will, that one person that you know, that you can relate to and they can relate to you. And I like the fact that you used emotional connections because, you know, there's this great, what's the word, adage out there that says, you know, that we that we uh, buy on emotion, but we justify on logic. And I've always said that, you know, to me, there's no really no such thing as logic. No, there's no logic. So the best brands in the world are the ones that elevate a person's self-concept. What you eat, what you drink, what you wear, what you buy, what you drive. It's all part of who you are. And it's part of ascending to the top of the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if you will. Um, The reason why branding is so important, regardless of the size and scope of your organization, is because 
when you communicate with customers, you only have 2% of their brain to work with, right? So 98% of what your brain is doing is happening outside of your awareness. 98% of your brain is working on things like digesting your food, metabolizing the booze you drank last night, circulating your blood, helping you sit up straight, breathing, growing hair, all of these different things. 2% of your brain that's available for, for a message to actually permeate. And then exactly what you said, Bert, 95% of buying decisions happen outside of the neocortex, the part of the brain that's rational, that does language processing, that does mathematics. It happens in what we call the gut, right? It it happens in the, the part of the brain that that controls the feels, right? And people have to feel something to do something. Otherwise, ridiculous things like $2,000 handbags and $1,000 purses and, and shoes and whatever, none of those things would admit, it would exist, right? Right, right. Yeah. You know, I remember uh, Simon Sinek has this, uh, one of the most popular uh, TEDx talks, uh, and, and he talks about this golden circle, and he says that poor marketers start with what? And then they talk about how, and then they talk about why. And he says, you know, market leaders talk about why first. Yeah, and and why, so so the interesting thing, like God bless Simon Sinek for, you know, helping branding professionals all over the world, you know, more easily get our message across. But he's right. He says that organizations and people who communicate from a place of purpose and passion and who talk about why they do what they do have an opportunity to expose their values and beliefs to other people and use them as a magnet to attract people to them who are aligned with those values and beliefs, right? And think of it this way, in very practical terms, what what Simon Sinek is saying, and and I, I know you've experienced this. I've certainly experienced this. When you ask the question, what do you do? right? Say, what do you do? And then generally people default to this mode of saying, um, I'm a trauma ophthalmologist specializing in blunt trauma to the eye where the eyes bleed and, and blood goes all over the place. I glaze over. I don't know about you. When people talk about what they do, I completely glaze over. You very rarely get the opportunity to talk about why people do what they do. I've got a great example of this. A couple of years ago, I went to a conference and, uh, you know, when you go to conferences and, and, and you're work all day, work, 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 work. And then afterwards it's cocktail hour and you meet all kinds of new people. I sit down at the bar next to a stranger and, um, I ask him, I'm like, Hey, what do you do? And he, he gave me one of these really long stories. He was the trauma ophthalmologist and he was talking about all this gross stuff about objects in the eye, like stuff that made me feel physically ill. And all I wanted to do was like extract myself from that conversation. Right. Except for he was really cute. And I, and I, I was interested in buying him a drink, but he bored me to tears. And then he asked me what I do. And I said, I am in the business of creating the bonds of irrational loyalty between brands and their customers. I create this condition for for brands where their customers feel so indelibly bonded to them that they'd feel like they were cheating on them if they were to choose an alternative. And he was like, how do you do that? So I got to talk about how, and then he was like, okay, so what does that actually look like? And, you know, 10 minutes into the conversation, I told him like, yeah, I run a marketing agency, right? If I had just said, I run a marketing agency, remember I talked about my competitor who works directly across the street from me, he would have put me in the same bucket with her. So when organizations speak from this this place of purpose and passion and why they do what they do, it's very powerful. So I ran into him a couple a couple days later in the conference, like in an elevator or something. He said, Deb, Deb, I've got my story figured out. 
And he said, I want to talk about why I do what I do. And he told me this really poignant story about how when he was a, a student in undergrad, that the fraternity house that he lived in was directly across the street from a family. And there was a little girl who lived in the house. And every day she went outside and she climbed the tree in front of the house. And each day she got up higher and higher and higher. And then one day she fell. And as she fell, she hit every branch on the way down. And one of those teeny tiny branches on the end stuck in her eye when she lost her eyesight. And he said, the reason that I became a pediatric trauma ophthalmologist was to ensure that no kid would ever lose their eyesight from an accident that happened while a kid was just being a kid. He's like, I saved childhoods. And that, I mean, that was really meaningful. So if you take that, if you take Simon Sinek's idea of starting with why, if you take this idea of like activating and engaging people's limbic systems, like the part of the brain that gives people the feel when, when you connect with people deep in their heart with your brand, it it's like telling a story like that. You can't listen to that story without having an emotional reaction. And a brand is like the shortcut for that. It, it tells you what is the reaction you're supposed to have. It actually creates the feels. Yeah. And, and I love that. And, and again, What's so great is that you don't have to think about the masses. You're thinking about that one person, that one kid to use this, this doctor who hit that tree and got something stuck in their eye and, and was about to lose their eyesight. And that doctor came in and, and repaired that. And, and hopefully the, the child went on to have a, a normal childhood with both eyes, I guess. But what a difference emotionally. I'm a trauma ophthalmologist, blah, blah, blah. Okay, I'm sleeping. And it's, both, it's the same thing as people say, hey, I'm a lawyer, I'm a marketing person, I'm a, you know, I'm a whatever. Nobody, you know, that doesn't mean anything. Right. Uh, but when you make that emotional connection like you're talking about, then people go, oh, that's cool. Well, how do you do that? Mm -hmm. And, you know, now if they're not interested, they'll say, well, okay, that's cool. But at least you're either repelling or you're magnetically attracting the right people to you because of your brand story, that emotional connection that is that is focused on that one, as you said, ideal, perfect person. Yeah, we call that the ideal customer archetype. And when I've seen organizations scale rapidly and profitably, it's been when they've gotten this relentless focus on that ideal customer and they've made tough choices. So branding is about choice and it's less about what you do and who you serve and more about what you don't do and who you don't serve. If you are not alienating some people with your brand, you probably don't have a legendary brand because the best brands in the world are the ones that are unique. They're not just different. It's not enough to be different, right? I told you about my neighbor across the street. She runs a marketing agency. She runs a different marketing agency. It is not enough for us to be different from each other. We have to truly be unique in our own right. And so when brands aim their brand at this singular ideal customer and that person's values and beliefs and uses the brand as a magnet to attract those people by aligning with those things, that's where you create these powerful connections of irrational loyalty. And irrational loyalty, you and I have talked about this several times, irrational loyalty is something that protects you during times of turbulence. So yeah. irrational loyalty is that condition that makes it so when your kids leave dirty socks on the floor of the bathroom or a wet towel on the bed, that you don't throw them out, right? Because you're irrationally loyal to them. You can create right. those connections for a brand. And, you know, you think about it this way. 
your brand, whether you're the dentist down the road or you're, you know, one of the biggest household name brand companies in the world, your brand has an emotional bank account with the customers, right? And every time your brand behaves on brand, what does that mean? It means on expectation, on values, on beliefs for your relationship. You deposit something positive into that emotional bank account, right? And you build up a lot of positivity over time so that when something happens, like for instance, a pandemic where maybe people aren't able to use your brand fully or people can't visit your your place, like we talked about dentists. My dentist is is actually, he's actually a personal friend and um, it, it, I've not been able to go to the dental practice. However, I have a lot of emotional equity built up in our relationship together because during this time when no one was able to use his practice in the pandemic, he's been communicating with us and adding value to our lives as patients by, by giving us valuable content here, you know, here are things that you can do and, and eat during the pandemic that increase uh, teeth strength. Here are things that uh, here's valuable information about gum health for kids during the pandemic. Um, You know, bridging the gap by giving to us, even when we couldn't use his services, has built up the equity in that emotional bank account so that as soon as he opens up that practice fully, we're all going to be beating down his door. I know I need to get my teeth cleaned because I was three months late for a teeth cleaning when the pandemic hit. But so, so that condition is available to everybody. And you can't do that unless you know who you're aiming at and who you're in a relationship with. Yeah. Yeah. And I love it. And, and I, I want to just I'm going to say this and then I want to talk about something else that you since you brought up the pandemic. You know, a lot of people make the, um, uh, what do you call it? The mistake of thinking, well, you know, a brand that's a multi-million dollar company, you know, and there are literally hundreds of multi-million dollar brands that had a massive team behind them. They had tons of money and yet they fail. And, you know, I'll say one of my favorite brands that, that I call it a failure, even though they're still around, is TiVo. TiVo was far ahead of anybody else in the DVR market. It was synonymous. Their brand was synonymous with DVR. Hey, just TiVo that. Whether you use the TiVo or you use a, 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 a different brand, but they fail to capture uh, and continue that that market growth. And now they, you know, of course, technology has changed, so maybe they're not as needed as they used to be. Whatever, but you know, just because. There, there's millions of dollars behind a brand doesn't mean it's a guarantee. And in some cases, you know, it it almost it almost hurts them that they have so much talent and so much money and and all that other stuff. What's your take on on that? So, you know, what you're talking about there, uh, it, it happens a lot. There's a lot of brands that have been able to go through massive transformations in terms of the functional benefits that they provide and even the emotional benefits that they provide, but the brands, but the brands survive. Like look at Apple, for instance, like Apple has been through several incarnations and they've bolted on other, other offerings. Google is another one that's highly, highly extensible. And it all, it all is oriented around the brand promise. So TiVo, for instance, TiVo was a brand, the reason that it didn't survive, TiVo could have been an amazing brand in the streaming space if they had looked at their brand promise as something bigger than just being a, a, a functional benefit that helps people record and watch shows on demand. They could have been the leader 
in on-demand programming. They could have been the leader in giving people control over entertainment if they had thought bigger as a brand. They could have made the pivot away from recording and serving up TV shows using a device to just giving people control over the stories that they bring into their homes. They totally crapped the bed on that one. Blackberry is another one, right? Blackberry. Blackberry, yes. I Blackberry. mean, they were in the graveyard. I don't know about you. When Blackberry came out, I was a freaking Crackberry addict. Like my right. fingers were on that thing, and and one of the reasons that I that at first I was like no Apple for me, no iPhone for me was like I thought I was going to miss that like that thumbs on the key thing. Do you remember this? I mean, it literally yeah. was like everybody, I, everybody. The endorphins start going when I think about how much I love my Blackberry. But Blackberry built a brand that basically was about people getting email on the go. Apple built a brand about giving people access to the world in their hand, right? And when you create a brand that is where the sum of the parts is greater than the whole, that connects with an ideal customer, that elevates them in their lives, provides them with something singular that they can't get from anywhere else. You create a brand that's highly extensible. You create a brand that can scale. You create a brand that has focus. And you create a brand, most importantly, that has a deep-seated meaning that transcends the product that you provide. And so like TiVo in the brand graveyard, BlackBerry in the brand graveyard. I see brands like this all the time. Kodak, Kodak in the brand graveyard, Kodak, like one of the best brands in the world. Instead of, instead of focusing on being about, we're all about film. Like who uses freaking film anymore? Unless you're filming a movie and a lot of movies are shot digitally now. Right. 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 Instead of focusing on film, they were so perfectly positioned to be about capturing and communicating memories, but they didn't keep up with the digital age because they were thinking too small. So the TiVo example is a really, really good example of strategically where a brand's not doing it. Look at Amazon, right? Amazon, their brand promise is to be a platform for buying and selling anything from A to Z. It's even baked into their logo, that little arrow. It's not a smile. It's a, it's an arrow. It says from A to Z. Z. Yeah. Every single thing they do, people like I hear people talking all the time. I talk to media all the time. They're like, I don't understand what Amazon's doing. I'm like, no, they are 100% on strategy because they are a platform for buying and selling everything from A to Z. Right. This is 100% expected and predictable from Amazon that they're in this particular business. Right. They're very, very clear. Google, same thing. All the world's information in one click. Like, it's very clear. Every move they make, I'm like, I understand why they did that. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, anyway, so so uh, we, we could we could talk about all these, all these things uh, forever because, it, to me, first of all, it is just so amazing because it doesn't matter whether you have millions of dollars or just a few hundred bucks. You can create this emotional connection with you, that one perfect uh, avatar or customer and, you know, one of my favorite things about Google is they, I think they have, uh, you can actually Google the, there's like 250 Google failures because they don't mind trying something for a few years. I mean, they tried, you know, uh, Google circles and then there was the Google plus and all that. Other. They've tried yeah. 250 things that didn't work. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's part of the innovation is you try something and it fails and you keep going. All right. So let's talk about this because before the show, you were talking about that there's a great opportunity now because people are looking to their brands for leadership 
in this pandemic. So talk about this. What do you see that brands can do to become leaders in this during this pandemic? People are looking for leadership right now. Uh, are you familiar with uh, Army General Stanley McChrystal? He's the team of teams guy. Uh, he yes, yes, yes. I remember his interview on 60 Minutes. Yes, I do remember. Okay. Yeah. So he, you know, he commanded forces in Afghanistan. And early on in the pandemic, I heard an interview with him. I think it was like NPR morning edition. And they only had a couple minutes with him. But they asked the very specific question of how should leaders be communicating with people at this time, in a time of uncertainty. And he said this, he said that in an absence of information, people will make up the most terrifying scenarios. People don't make up good news if they don't know what's going on. In the lack of information, the lack of leadership, people fill in with like a bunch of really bad stuff, right? And he said, we we need to lead. And, and how do you lead? You lead by being being precise. You lead by being clear. You lead by being honest because people at their core can handle bad news if you put it into context for them. And so that was probably at the beginning of April when I heard that interview. And that's something that's really stuck out in my mind. And then you watch the like the trajectory of pandemic-related brand communication. It sort of started out with the we are all in this together emails. Did you receive the we are all in this together email? I mean, yeah, I think I'm still from, getting from it. Like, hundreds of CEOs I've never heard of, I've never heard from before. We all got the same kind yeah, of. That's because no one knew what to say. Nobody knew what to say. And so right. then so, so it was the email that basically said, hey, if you need a new lamp, sofa table, Aston Martin, we're all in this together. You know, let's talk about the people behind the scenes, our hopes and prayers. There's those hopes and prayers. You know what I mean? It was like the same email and I received it like probably 1700 times. Then fast forward to like, hey, we're all making masks. Do you remember that? And we're retooling our factories to make hand sanitizer. And we're all in this together. It's because brands didn't know what to say. People are looking for leadership. Then we saw, um, then it became television commercials. Remember the television commercials? They all start off with like the tinkly piano music and it shows the doctors high-fiving each other and taking off their masks. You can see the masks are on so tight. And whatever, it's like the same television commercial. It's because nobody knew what to say. So so people are look, looking to brands for leadership. They are looking for, especially, you know, when we when we saw the social justice movement pick up steam again uh, after the, the killing of George Floyd and all of this, we saw another round of this, like brands trying to participate in the conversation in a meaningful way. People need information. And when our leaders are not giving us correct information, when, you know, the public institutions that we are relying on to at least not give us disinformation, they're looking everywhere for someone to tell them how to feel, where to be, how to act, what to do, what to say. And they're looking to the brands that they love. So it has never, ever, ever been more important than it is now to show up with a set of values and beliefs as a brand and let the world know what you stand for and and what you're about. Like show your gooey insides because consumers are demanding this of the organizations that they do business with because the best brands in the world are the ones that become part of the person who uses them. So, you know, here's, here's a good example. Um, and the, 
I want to say like probably a month ago when the social justice movement and brands were in the news again, what we saw was like a reckoning that was happening for brands that seemed to um, appropriate um, cultural things like Uncle Ben's and Aunt Jemima and, you know, all of these brands having to come and, and not only take responsibility, but fall on their swords and, and admit that over the years they they've been out there perpetuating racial stereotypes and and that they've been ignorant of the of the issues and and all of that and and taking that reckoning and so people are looking to brands to lead through these situations and give them the confidence that they need to feel good about their purchases, to feel good about how they're living their lives. I don't know if you've ever used, if you've ever used a brand that you were embarrassed to tell somebody that you actually liked or that you used, that is the most dangerous position for a brand to be in is when people are embarrassed to use your brand. And, and it's a, it's a very, very real feeling like what you eat, what you drink, what you wear, what you drive, where you go, the magazine, you read the media you consume, it says something about you, not just to other people, but to yourself, right? It's all part of your self-concept. And so people are looking for leadership and they're looking for brands. Otherwise, there wouldn't be things like, uh, you know, a couple of months ago when the social justice movement, again, was like really, really, I think, you know, Breonna Taylor and um, George Floyd and, and Ahmaud and, you know, protests in, in all these different places. Like, the public was demanding that brands like Adidas that serve the black community come forward and have something to say about that. Consumers were demanding of brands that were making a statement on their social justice policies. They were demanding that those organizations not just pay lip service to a movement, but actually take action within the organization to say like, all right, you want to go out there and you want to co-opt this moment to raise the profile of your brand? Well, here's a reckoning for you. You need to behave from the inside in a way that shows leadership to other people. So that means like really look at your executive team, look at your board of directors, look at the composition of your company and enact and also communicate what you are going to do in order to resolve these issues. So people are requiring brands to act. And that action in many, many cases is leadership because it sets the tone for the rest of us in terms of how we should act and how we should feel and what what we should do. And so thank you for listening to my TED talk on uh, (laughs) on brand leadership. But I mean, that's like the big thing right now. Sure. Well, first of all, I thought... uh plenty of great information on how a brand can, again, separate themselves from what everybody else is doing, which is, you know, hey, we're in it together, but here, buy my stuff. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that I thought was, was interesting, and again, emotionally uh, uh, true, and that is, as you said, when we don't have that information, we insert our own horrible negative stuff. And when yeah, it's never good. It's never, it's good. never and, good. And what's interesting is that's exactly what I do when I don't hear from my kids, when I'm supposed to hear from my kids, right? It's like, okay, I've texted them 
and they're not responding. So they either they're probably on a ditch, you know, with their car turned upside down. And you there's know, like a pool of blood on the highway. Yeah, I like I'm there. I'm I'm there. I got it too. Like you fill in the worst case scenario. So for brands during this pandemic, I was out there telling brands, even if people can't use your brand, your restaurant, for instance, your personal service or something like that, that people can't use, you have to communicate and communicate not through a lens of trying to sell something to someone, but, but by giving something to other people. How can you add value to people's lives, even at a time when they can't use you? I've been out there preaching to everybody. And I'm actually like, I had started working on a book about AI, like, you know, uh, several months ago. And then when the pandemic hit, I kind of, I kind of tabled it. And now I'm working on, I'm working on a book about the counterintuitive nature of how to communicate during a crisis, which my theory is, that the brands that truly win in crisis are the ones who do things through a lens of helping and not selling. And so I've been inspired by many, many brands who have been out there giving, like just, just giving, and I'm not talking about giving money, but giving value by asking themselves the simple question of how can I be indispensable to people at this time? All right. I have a business that people can't use. How can I be indispensable at this time? How much can I give away for free? I am my own case study in this. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I believe it was March the 13th was the day that the WHO declared a global pandemic. Um, My world fell apart. So in addition to running like a really nice branding and, and strategy agency, um, I, I mostly make my living as a paid professional speaker. And I had speaking dates scheduled out for, you know, the next seven, eight months. And I was going to be traveling around the world. And, and I believe I was going to be on almost every continent over, over the year from about January to December. And 100% of my speaking engagements canceled. Um, additionally, at the same time, my company, we lost like 70% of our recurring revenue uh, in April when clients were just like, we're not like, we can't, we just, can't. and then right. a lot of our clients were having supply chain issues. Even if we were working on, on projects with them, they couldn't get product to us to be able to photograph or do videos or communicate about or whatever. Like it, it was effed up, Bert. it was like really, really effed up. And in that moment, I, I was like, all right, what are we going to do with this situation? I lost hundred percent of my personal income. The business was like circling the drain. And I asked myself this question, how can we be indispensable to people at this time? And I decided that there was never a better time than then to just generously share our expertise as an organization with as many people as we could without asking for anything in return. And as a result of just sharing my expertise and giving people access to this incredible network of experts that I have. So I know tons of best-selling authors and speakers and experts and coaches and consultants and like household name brand CEOs all over the world. I brought people together with those people. I shared like, here's how to communicate during this time. Here's what your brand should be doing. Just giving it away for free. And what I did was I I helped our company. We grew our community exponentially. We grew our existing community by 200%. And now we've cultivated this incredible engaged community of people who are now leaning forward and telling us what they want to buy from us, which what that created was a, a, an entirely new business that we launched 
like entirely new that came out of like my own learnings from being a, a paid professional speaker and not having a speaker platform anymore. We needed to figure out a way for people to share authority and monetize their expertise without, without speaking engagements. And then the second piece of that was it helped us actually engineer a pretty significant pivot in our business model. Some problems that I have been dealing with in this business literally for 10 years that we undid by just giving generously to our community. And so as a result, like if you just take Q2 and you like wipe the slate clean and say there was no Q2, I think like I've given us permission to think that this could be our most profitable year in business ever. And that came about not by selling, not by marketing, not by trying to force things on people, not by offering discounts, but by giving to other people. And, and that's been the big lesson in, in this. And that's my huge takeaway from this period. So when, you know, back to your question about brands exhibiting leadership, the way that we chose to lead through the crisis was by giving, just by asking ourselves the question of how can we be indispensable to people at this time? And what we found was we can just share our expertise with them. There was never a better time than now to share that expertise with other people without an expectation of anything in return. I didn't expect anything in return. We did it. We were guileless in sharing all this expertise with people. And what that did was it created that condition of irrational loyalty. And I'm not kidding. We are literally writing proposals and having new business conversations every day with people who we've engaged over time just by giving to them. So it's it's a flip of the script a little bit, like going away from marketing and selling and like looking at the act of of creating a market, which marketing means to create a market, bringing buyers and sellers together. Right. How do you bring buyers and sellers together? Not by selling to them, but by giving to them. That's the counterintuitive right. thing. Well, and I think that's a great, great way to, uh, again, help your community. As you said, be, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, no. Uh, indispensable. Yeah. Thank you. Indispensable. And that's exactly what your dentist did. You mentioned that to be, uh, you know, during the show is that, you know, your dentist started putting out valuable content. It wasn't, hey, uh, you know, buy my next dental service. It's here's some stuff that you can do to help your teeth uh, be wider. And it wasn't and all teeth harder. related. Yeah, yeah. And it wasn't all teeth related either. Like, oh. you know, he sent out like a like a coloring book for kids that was like follow Mr. Tooth or whatever. I, you know, my kid is 23 years old, so I don't need coloring books for her, but I you know, my friends and, and colleagues who have kids who are, you know, off for the summer, who are now doing homeschool, like they're dying for activities to do with their children and whatever, like be helpful to people and, and, you know, underwrite that with your brand, but, but give, 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 don't sell, sell, sell. Right. Right. Yeah. Because ultimately the selling takes care of itself because, you know, really selling is a, is a byproduct of a relationship. And if you have a relationship, a, you know, a real relationship where somebody trusts you, then they're going to buy from you. And, information is one of the safest, easiest things to give somebody. So you're helping them and building that relationship by actually helping them, you know, with their problem. And, yeah. and you know, and, and again, uh, to me, it's a great, great strategy. It's always work. It's a great time to put it into action. Now, Deb, we're out of time. I'm going to put your uh, information up here real quick. If you guys want to reach out to Deb and get some more information, 
about becoming indispensable, not only now, but in the future, you can reach Deb at soulmarketing.com or you just type in Deb Gabor and you'll find her all over the internet. Deb, thank you so much for stopping by today. Thanks, Bert. Remember, don't lick your fingers. That's right. Don't lick your <laughs> It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.